Thank you, John. And, uh, and, and I want to point out, and you'll, you'll hear a little bit more about this in our study today, but uh, John was a, a member of uh, the church here at the time of his baptism and uh, was, had also served as an elder, I think. Uh, uh, and so the uh, and you'll, you'll hear this in our talk, membership here and, and serving in leadership positions. Um, uh, if, if all of you who are members have been through the new members class. Um, so you'll see, hopefully you'll see kind of how we parse, parse all this out. Now, I want to do something. I'm just uh, uh, curious here a little bit, um, and you don't have to raise your hand to these, but um, how many of you were, I'll start with mine, how many of you were raised in a Baptist church? Oh, a lot. Okay. What about a Presbyterian church? All right. Methodist? Lutheran? Catholic? All right. All right. We've got a spring, and there's many, many more. <laughs> but what? No church. All right, there we go. <laughs> One of the things, uh, um, you know, as we are going through our Church 101 series, we're kind of walking through um, why we do what we do. And so uh, this week we're landing on baptism. Next week we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. Um, one of the things that I am anxious to um, jump into is we'll get back to our normal, um, our more normal practice of what we do here uh, I can tell you, we uh, in about a month we will start. We will jump into First Peter and spend uh, a couple of Sundays there, or maybe months. However, the Lord leads in that, um, and so th- that's where we are heading. But today, I, I do want to talk about baptism, and one of the things that's interesting is we don't have near the time to answer all the questions and to uncover all the. Um, all the debates that are within this, the whole idea of, of baptism and what is baptism. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, um, but have you ever thought about why there's such debate over baptism? Um, you know, I think as, uh, as John was saying, and many of my friends who are in Presbyterian churches, and I'm just going to pick on them just for a minute, um, you know, if they just really read their Bibles, they would agree with me on my stance on baptism. No. The issue becomes is that some wonderful brothers and sisters in the Lord who know their Bibles really, really well um, come to different conclusions on some of these things. And it's not out of lack of desire uh, for obedience or lack of desire for certain things. I, I believe that my friends at Wayside this morning if they were convinced, um, I, I need to stop joking there, but if they were convinced uh, that the Scripture says something different than what they do, that they would, they'd have to come over here to do it, but they would come over here and be baptized, immersed in the water um, upon believers' baptism. Um, every time I am over there, uh, uh, Chuck and Brian get tired of my joke. Of They, they have a baptismal uh, stand and uh, they sprinkle, and I always ask them, how do you get the person all the way in there? And uh, then they have, they, they have some things that they say back to me. Um, one, of the things that, one of the things that I don't want to be missed, because we are going to get a little bit into some of the weeds, but one of the things that I want to I, I strike just right at the beginning, sometimes when we have an issue like baptism that is debated, that is looked at differently, 
uh, among fellow believers uh, who are committed to the Lord and committed to walking out in obedience what the Lord would call them to do. Sometimes when we get into some of these debatable areas, one of the things that happens is that we miss the true meaning and significance of, of what we're talking about, and we go right into, should you baptize infants, should you not? And, and one of the things at the outset that I just want to pause and say, the first thing is, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, commanded, go, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second thing that I want to point out, as John read this morning in our Scripture, this is no light matter, meaning... What baptism signifies is no light matter. And so one of the things that I don't want to happen is that as we begin to talk in a minute about um, what baptism does and it welcoming into the church and what do we mean when we say welcoming into the church, one of the things that I don't want us to lose sight of is, is what we heard in Romans 6. And so I, I want to just highlight some verses again. And I want you to hear, hear the significance of this. Or do you not know, starting in verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus has been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be with Him in the likeness of of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is to never die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is no light matter. What baptism signifies means everything. Wrapped up in this is the whole idea that we are sinners and that, we, that sin is to be punished and that Christ came and became our Savior. He became our substitute. He died in our place so that as He died, our sins, if we're united in Him, are with Him. As we are raised, we live in a new way. We walk in the newness of life. This means everything. And so I don't want this. I don't want what we're going to talk about today to, to skew us very far from that. Now, the reason why I think there's so much debate on this subject, is that we do not have a place in Scripture that we can point to where Paul says, Timothy, only baptize uh, people who have confessed Christ and get a tank, dip them in there, and this sort of thing. Now, we don't have that, so that leads to debate. However, however, it is my opinion and... uh, in the elders of this church, that there is enough in the Scripture that I think informs us so that what you're going to hear in a minute is that we definitely have a stance on not only what baptism is and who should receive baptism, but it also means that at this church we do things a certain way to certain people. 
So, so bear with me for a minute. I want to just give you real briefly a little bit of the lay of the land. Um, and and this, none of this is all-encompassing, but um, there is a mode of baptism, whether you are sprinkled or whether you are immersed in water. And uh, the Catholic Church, Presbyterians, and Methodists tend to uh, sprinkle. Um, the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church, along with other denominations, Lutheran Church, will baptize infants. Um, other churches will not baptize infants, and we'll, we'll get into that in a second as well. The Catholic Church um, views baptism as uh, salvific. That means that it, it actually saves the person uh, being baptized. Um, the Church of Christ, I, we don't have time to go all into this, but the Church of Christ um, believes that you must be baptized to be saved. Uh, I, I think there's a little bit of a distinct, uh, probably a lot of distinction between those two views, but so I don't want to combine them. Uh, the Baptist Church uh, believes that baptism is by immersion, and many Baptist churches hold that if you have not been baptized and dunked, then you cannot join the church. And so many of you may have uh, gone through this of where maybe if you were a part of a Baptist church and grew up in another tradition, that in order to join the church, you had to be dunked that evening before you were allowed into membership later. So there's, there's a wide landscape on this, and everybody has their, their, their reason for doing this. And one of the things that I want you to know is that baptism, baptism is linked to being a member of the church. Baptism is linked to be a member of the church. A, a, a big fancy phrase is that ecclesiology and baptism are, 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 are intertwined in many ways. And when we're talking about baptism, some people, when they're talking about baptism, meaning that you're uh, in the church, mean that if you haven't been baptized, you're not a part of the universal church. Other folks would say, no, no, um, you know, we don't believe that, but we believe if you're going to belong to our certain local church, you have to be baptized or baptized a certain way. Now, what I think and what we believe is that baptism, as John said, is a mark of obedience. I think in the first century when uh, the apostles were going around and baptizing in the first century church, there was probably no such thing necessarily unless it was physically impossible as an unbaptized Christian. We see all throughout the book of Acts that people come to faith and they're baptized. Boom, right away. Um, and, and to be honest, um, I, in talking with someone who has not been baptized... Um, who's a committed believer or, or who is a believer, I, it does make me question and want to ask questions of, well, why haven't you followed through with this step of obedience? It's the first step of obedience we're asked uh, to, to join into, and so it becomes a, in my mind, it becomes a, a heart issue of something we need to talk through. So, I, I laid out a little bit of, here are some other churches and how they do it, and so, so what about us? And I just want to real quickly go through our statement of faith. It mentions baptism. And you'll notice how um, vague it is on baptism. So the church is a living organism comprised of all believers in Christ Jesus. We are to engage in the building up of the body of Christ through the ministry of the word, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and the practice of baptism resulting in a visible testimony to the surrounding community. 
One of the things that's interesting is that in our statement of faith is that we are not linking baptism with church membership. Do you see that? We're not linking those two things. We also use the word resulting in a visible testimony, meaning that we believe it is a sign, it is a testimony, not only to ourselves, but to the community. As John said, it is an outward sign of an inward reality. So, our stance is this. We have a stance. In practice, we baptize those who profess faith in Christ. So you have to be a believer to be baptized. So that's what we do. Not only that, but we dunk or immerse. We believe that the Scripture, and I'm going to point out the Scriptures of this in a minute, so that we believe strongly enough in this that this is how we practice it. However, however, we do not deny membership into our fellowship of those who have been uh, baptized in another way who in good faith believe that that baptism uh, is sufficient and that they can, and, and they can stand on that. Does that make sense? That makes sense? So I'm going back to John's testimony. That's why I wanted him to share his testimony. John was not denied membership into the church. He was not, not denied being uh, uh, elected as an elder into the church. Although, the way that John was baptized early on in his life, we don't do here. Does that make sense? Um, good, let's pray. No. Um. <laughs> now, a quick word, a quick word, and, and this is brought to my attention recently from some events. What we are not saying by that is that any old baptism will do. Okay? Um, what I mean by that is that, um, and I'm trying to, to not get too fancy into words, but th- there's a difference between what I would call a Christian baptism and a heretical baptism. A Christian baptism is done by um, a, a, a person a, or a, a proclaimer who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Versus something like, you know, the, the Mormon church will baptize. So we would not look at that as a baptism. And so you'll hear a lot, uh, if, you, if you really like this kind of debate and you want to read it, you'll hear a lot of like gospel-centered Trinitarian baptism. And all that's meaning is a, an orthodox view of what baptism is. And so when we admit someone into membership, you know, if somebody had been baptized uh, in a heretical environment, we would want to talk to them about that and, and to engage that. Um, now, obviously, we don't allow non-believers to join the church, and that's a foundation there as well. So, let's walk through this. Um, and, and, and I want to say from the outset, um, we have this stance. I hold to the stance that I have said, and I actually think it's pretty clear, um, but you can, you can judge for yourself. So, we're going to go rapid fire through some of these things. But the first thing that I want to p- point out is that scripturally, Scripturally, I think the best case can be made that baptism is by immersion. And this is the normal practice in the New Testament. The word itself, baptizo in Greek, means to to dip or to plunge or to immerse. The, The word itself means that. Now we see from very early on in Mark, uh, we could go to a couple places, but in Mark chapter 1 verse 5. 
And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Talking about John the Baptist. And then look at verse 10. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now, this is the baptism of Jesus, and I think it's pretty clear when we read that, that what is going on is that they are being submerged into water and coming out of the water. I don't think anybody really kind of debates that. Um, If you fast forward, and if you just want to keep your finger here, we're going to be in Acts a lot this morning. (laughs) But if you go to Acts chapter 8, verses uh, starting in verse 36. As they went along, this is the Ethiopian eunuch. As Philip had had witnessed to him, and and, uh, and he he had... expressed faith, and it says in verse 36, as they went along, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And then if you just go uh, down to verse 38, and he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water, uh, and then this really interesting thing, and the Lord snatched Philip away. (laughs) And the eunuch no longer saw him, but they went on, he went on his way rejoicing. Again, we see that the normative practice seems to be being submerged into water. The other thing is that the symbolism all throughout the New Testament, the, the book of Romans that we, in the book of Romans that we just read, if you were to go to Colossians uh, chapter 2, you get a very similar thing, that the whole idea is that we are united with Christ in his death and his burial, and we are raised with him. And so, all of this evidence really seems to point to me that, that this is talking about immersion. Now, so you ask the question, Lewis, would you ever sprinkle someone? And the answer to that is yes. If they were unable for some reason, maybe they're in the hospital, uh, something like that, and they were unable to go through with believer's baptism by immersion, sure, we would extend that to them. But as a normative practice of what we think the Old Testament or the New Testament teaches, we believe in baptism by immersion. That doesn't mean if you're in here and you were sprinkled that we think you're a bad person. That's not what we're saying, but I'm just laying out for you why we do uh, what we do. Now, um, second thing, second thing. We believe in what I'm calling believer's baptism. In other words, you have, that baptism is for those who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I, I'll cover infant baptism in a minute, and I hope I have plenty of time to do that. Um, but that's next section. But here, what I want you to see is that I, we think that the Scripture is pretty clear that the act of baptism doesn't actually save you but is, a, again, an outward sign of something that has happened inwardly. And so, let's look again in Acts. Uh, last week, Gary did this as well. And on these Church 101 things, the book of Acts is, is a very helpful guide to us and informs us. But if you start all the way back in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, in verse 41. So then, those who had received His word were baptized... And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. If you jump to chapter 10 of the book of Acts. In 
verse 44 and 46. We read this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for those for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can we? That there was something that had taken place in them and uh, then they were baptized. Again, just in chapter 16, uh, two more instances I want to point out in the book of Acts. Chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart. Notice that. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying. And so we see again this order of the Lord opened her heart and she responded and then she was baptized. And lastly, verses 27 through 33, talking about the jailer. He awoke and saw the prison doors open and he drew the sword and was going to kill himself. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't kill yourself. And he called for the lights and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And notice this, verse 31. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And then later, verse 33, And he took them at the very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized in all of his household. So again, we see the order here um, being that these folks were coming to faith and then being baptized. An- another instance in 1 Corinthians, do you remember this uh, strange statement that uh, Paul utters uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He said, I came not to baptize, but to share the gospel. Now, this is not Paul saying that baptism is unimportant, but what is interesting in this debate is that Paul is separating out the two things. So that what he's saying is that the, the, the ministry of the gospel and salvation is different than the sign of baptism. Again, I would ask you this, and those of you who were here um, through our study on the book of Romans, and those of you who were here for the ladies' study uh, through the book of Galatians, um, how are we justified? We are justified by faith, right? Uh, n- nowhere in those formulas do we see that we are justified by any works uh, even baptism. And the other one that, that everybody knows of uh, is the thief on the cross, that Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, what's interesting there, and I'm interested about these type things, but I won't bore you with, is that some theologians do uh, some twirling and backflips to get around that one. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's interesting to me. So, we believe in believer's baptism by immersion. So, so, what about infants? So, at the face of it, what I would like to say and what I believe is that, right, infants can't express the need for a Savior. They can't express the gospel. Um, infants uh, can't be saved uh, in, the, in the terms of what we see in the Bible. And so, so, one thing kind of against infant baptism is that. Now, when we talk about infant baptism, I do want to separate out two uh, different uh, church models. 
uh, one is the Catholic view, and the Catholic view is that something is actually happening in that baptism, that through that sacrament, grace is actually being inferred onto that infant, so that infant is actually saved. There's grace poured out through that sacrament. In fact, in fact, um, the reason for this is that the Catholic Church rightly believes in original sin, uh, but where I think this goes a little haywire is, is when they start to try to explain what happens to an infant who passes uh, before they reach an age where they can express faith in Christ. And in fact, they have a doctrine called uh, uh, limbus infantium, uh, which means infant limbo, where uh, an infant who has not been baptized is in neither heaven nor hell, so they don't get the, the joys of being in heaven and they don't get tortured in hell, but they're in some kind of limbo. Um, another whole sermon, but it's worthy of doing at some point, is, uh, and especially on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, um, I, I think there is strong evidence in the Bible uh, that for those who are not at the uh, mental capacity to be able to uh, place their faith in Christ, that God in His love brings those children into His fold. And so you parents who maybe have gone through the tragedy of losing a loved one will one day be re- reunited with that child one day. That, again, that's a whole other sermon, but um, that's one of the reasons why uh, Catholic churches baptize infants. Now, the Presbyterian church, this is not what they're doing. Okay, And I want to be very, very, very clear on this. That is not what the Presbyterian church is doing or saying. The Presbyterian church does not believe that when they baptize an infant that that child is saved, that that child has come into a a saving faith uh, with Christ. What they are saying is that that child that is baptized comes into the covenant community, the covenant community of God. There is um, uh, one of the things that was interesting uh, and so, what I can't wrap my mind around, and I made some phone calls this week to try to understand it because I wanted to be fair, um, but when I pressed my friends, okay, no, tell me exactly what you feel like is happening at infant baptism, the more I pressed, the more confused I got. <laughs> I, there is some level of grace that's administered there. Um, and so I'm just a simple person. And so uh, the, my friend that I was talking knows my daughter really well. She loves him. He loves her. And so I said, so, okay, let me just make this simple. Flannery, my five-year-old, who has not expressed faith in Christ, is she a covenant child? And he said, sure. And so I was like, so, okay, so tell me again, why are we baptizing infants? And so he went back through it, and my head hurt, and I said, okay, all right, I love you, i got to go. Um, now, there are two arguments from Scripture, and, and, and rest assured, these arguments from good Bible-believing Presbyterians, they, they are making an argument from Scripture, and so I want to give you these two arguments that, that are most common. There are probably more, but the most common one, number one, is what is called the household baptism argument, and number two is the baptism circumcision um, argument. Um, the first one is, so they would look at some of the passages that we read, like the jailer, and say, oh, look, it says that his whole household was baptized. Lydia, her whole household was baptized. Uh, hopefully you're still there. In, in Acts chapter 16, verse 33, 
I want to read this again. This is the jailer. It says, He took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized and all his household. Now, keep reading. Let's look at verse 34. He brought them into his house and set food before him and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. I believe it's really clear that what happened is that Paul and Silas went to this man's house and shared the gospel, and the folks in the house accepted the gospel, and Paul and Silas baptized them. Again, if you look at verse uh, 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So this denotes that there was a conversation, a speaking of the word with all that was in his house, and, and in my mind, what this means is that these were people who were able to make that decision to follow Christ. Acts chapter 10, um, that is another place that um, it, some people uh, look at that as a household baptism, although it's, it's, it's a little weaker in that. But what's interesting in that is that not only does it say that all were baptized, but it also says all received the Spirit. And so it, it seems like, I, I don't mean this as a joke, so don't take this as a joke. Nobody has ever, well, that's probably, no good Presbyterian, that's a better way to say that. There's another group that would, might say that. No good Presbyterian has ever told me that they think that their child has received the Holy Spirit uh, in a way where they were maybe speaking in tongues or doing something that would have been going on here in the book of Acts. Um, and so, so there's a problem there. And the other one is Lydia, and we're not, that, that's, that's not as clear. But one of the things that's presupposed on these household baptisms is that there were infants in the house. We're never told that. We also don't know, and, and we all know from, hopefully if you've, if you've read the Bible, um, that, that you know that... Um, in biblical times, they don't think of things the, the way we do. And so sometimes, it, you know, it would say that there were 5,000 people. Well, really, they were only counting the men because sometimes they didn't count women and children. So we don't know when it says the whole household, are they speaking of were there infants in the home? We don't know. When they say whole household, are they just talking about people of a certain age and a certain maturity level? We don't know. At best... At best, I think the household argument is an argument uh, from silence, just to be honest with you, uh, that's inferred from silence. The second thing, and this is a more tricky one, and we have, don't near have the time to... This is a place where you could spend lectures and lectures. But the second thing is this, is that, uh, and you will hear this a lot, is that um, baptism replaces circumcision. Uh, and... and and what I want to lay out at the outset is there are many Bible verses in the New Testament where circumcision and baptism are, uh, have a loose relationship. It's never placed in a one-on-one -on -one relationship, one correlation with another correlation. Uh, the idea goes something like this in Genesis 16. Abraham was commanded all his male children to be circumcised on the eighth day. And this will mark that you are a physical member of of Abraham, what we now know as the Jewish people. A physical people with a physical mark uh, denoting membership into that. The New Testament, right, is a spiritual mark, spiritual sign, baptism, 
for a spiritual people. I think even here we have some cracks in that logic. Second of all, secondly, what are we told in the Old Testament in prophecy about circumcision in the New Covenant? What's going to be circumcised? The heart, right? The other thing, and, and this, is, this comes from... Uh, I was doing my Bible reading of trying to go through the Bible in a year, and uh, um, in, I was in Acts 15. And Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council, and let me just poke my way through this very quickly. But starting in verse 1, it says that some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these are men um, who had accepted Christ, and they were telling them, hey, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. You've got to take on the physical sign of Israel. And so the council is meeting, and um, so verse 6 uh, the apostles and elders came together to look into the matter. And after they, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put a yoke to test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I think if the apostles and the early church felt, and if God wanted us to make the conclusion that baptism replaces circumcision and therefore we should, circum we should baptize our infants, that this would have been the perfect place for the apostles and the Holy Spirit to inspire the writer to say, hey, no need to have this circumcision debate. They've been baptized. Fair enough? That's not what's going on. And so I, so I just have a hard time believing that it's a total one-for-one one argument. Now, again, one of the things that I want to make clear this morning, our stance is that we baptize believers by immersion. And we are convinced of the Scripture of this practice. However, the goal this morning is not to guilt you into um, uh, being rebaptized unless you feel like, hey, that's something that I need to do. So, in other words, Gary has joked with me for the past couple of weeks that um, a couple of Sundays ago he preached on tithing. Now, it did just happen to be the year end, but we had this huge tithe. Last week, he happened to preach on uh, church membership, and we had a bunch of people join the church. And so, I have warmed up the water. Uh, now, here's what I really want to, here's where I want to push us home. My prayer my prayer is I, I don't want us to get too defensive or possessive over our stance on this issue. The problem that I want us to have is that we are so fulfilling our calling as believers and witnesses to the gospel that we become a place where these waters are used 
very frequently because we are welcoming into the universal and local church those who are being baptized. And so, so one of the things I really want to leave you with as we're thinking about this baptism thing, and, and you may have questions or, wanna, or you may be very comfortable in your stance, that, that, that's fine, that's fine. But what I want to press upon us is let's not get so hung up over baptism that we miss the bigger picture of what God was doing in the book of Acts and what I know that God wants to happen today. And so I pray. I pray that as we leave here, as we leave here, um, that we would maybe be um, rightly convicted and concerned about our neighbor, not who's the committed Presbyterian believer, but about our neighbor who doesn't know Christ. And that we would be bold in our witness so that we could welcome new brothers and sisters into the family of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that as we've had this uh, study on baptism, Lord, that you will... God, that I pray that we will just rejoice over what your Son has done, that He has come, and that we are united with Him in this picture, this sign that we get in baptism. God, I pray that it's not just some ritual or some rite, but God, I pray that we would look at this as just a joyous, wonderful thing of the sign that we have been united with you in your death, in your burial, and in your resurrection, and that we are walking forward in a newness of life because of the work that your Son did. God, as we sang this morning, we are forever grateful and we thank you. It's in your Son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, this